Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We've worked through Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. We'll pick up where we left off last week. And last week I, I read to you three questions from uh, the Baptist Catechism. And so this morning I want, to, I want you to think for a moment of another question from a different catechism. In fact, this question is probably one of the two most well-known questions, in, at least in catechism categories. But first, just a little bit of background to kind of set the stage. In the 1640s, a group of men called the Westminster Divines, that is, those who are called by God, sent by the Holy Spirit, and affirmed by His church, they assembled by edict of the English Parliament, actually, to compile what would become first the Westminster Confession of Faith to, to unify the church um, of the Reformation era in England with a, with a summary of essential biblical truth. And then also, eventually, they compiled a couple of teaching tools. And that f- first teaching tool was the, the Westminster Larger Catechism. This was designed for pastors to use in discipling and ordaining the officers of the church, um, elders and deacons. The second was the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is essentially the same thing, just shorter. Um, And it was designed for fathers to use in discipling their families. And the very first question they composed to begin this discipleship process of, these, of the catechisms, it was framed to explain in a, in a theological or in a biblical manner God's purpose in, in making man, male and female, in saving man and in sustaining man. God's purpose in making, saving, and sustaining or in creating, redeeming and his purpose in providence. So here's that first question. It's probably familiar to a bunch of us in here. It's the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What does it mean to glorify God? John Piper answers this question in in a typically Piperian way. And he says this, he says, glorifying means feeling and thinking and acting in ways that reflect his greatness, that make much of God, that give evidence of the supreme greatness of all of his attributes and the all-satisfying beauty of his manifold perfections. Jonathan Edwards um, might have been a little bit more specific and maybe even a little bit more clear, when he said that glorifying God looks like this. He said, from time to time in Scripture, embracing and practicing true religion, repenting of sin, and turning to holiness is expressed by glorifying God, as though that were the sum and end of the whole matter. Glorifying God, according to Edwards, looks like embracing and practicing true religion, repenting of sin, and turning to holiness. And just to, just to clarify, along with repentance and holiness, embracing and practicing true religion looks like not forsaking the assembling together. 
It looks like actively striving to fulfill the, the one another's of the Bible, especially the, the summary one another of love one another. True religion looks like a devotion to the family of God, to the church. True religion, James tells us, is, is visiting widows and orphans in their distress and, and keeping ourselves unstained from the world, turning to holiness. It's supporting the work of the ministry. True religion is, is being devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And it has to accompany repentance and holiness. Glorifying God looks like being conformed to the image of Christ, of acting like Christ, of imitating Christ, not just in our outward expressions, but in that inward heart orientation. It means having the mind of Christ. Now consider with me, as we think about these things, and as we look at this next section of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, consider what I would call the thorny issue of Christian liberty. Let me read, um, Paul is instructing and has been for quite some time the church there on eating food sacrificed to idols. So let me read this closing section. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 23. 1 Corinthians 10, 23 says this, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced um, because, uh, because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let's just stop and pray again. Father, I pray that you would feed us this morning from your word, that we might have our hearts set on you. Conform us to the image of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Why do you think, why do you think that Paul would address this issue, food offered to idols, why would he address this for, for three whole chapters? Why would he dedicate this much time and space in this letter to this issue? Well, obviously, this is a, this is a real issue for the Corinthian church. But we have to also admit that there must be an application for all Christians in here as well, Right? See, Paul has explained, as we've worked through chapters 8, 9, and 10 in particular, Paul has explained the, the problem of idolatrous meals from a variety of aspects. From the trouble that they, cause, that they cause new Christians who have been saved out of that idolatry, 
to the damage from pride that this so-called Christian liberty can do to our own hearts when we, when we approach these things selfishly. He's warned the Corinthians that they're, that they're flirting with disaster. He points to the experience of the Old Testament, namely the Hebrew people and the golden calf. They were flirting with disaster. He's also explained the problem in covenantal terms, as we saw last week. See, just like for Christians in the Lord's Supper, when a religious meal is eaten and in, as a part of worship, an allegiance is affirmed. And so when we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we are saying we are Christians, we are his people, and he is our God. And we are doing this as an affirmation of our fellowship with one another and with our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I probably could say that the opposite way, too. When we eat of the bread and drink of the cup together in communion, the Lord is reminding us that he is our God. And we are his people together. But it's just food, some say. Right. It's just bread and wine, but it's also a fellowship, a a communion, a, a participation in the body and blood of Christ. It's a renewal of the new covenant in his blood. And when idolaters do it, they're doing the same thing with their false gods, which turn out to be demons. Paul says. Now, as I I said, Paul has spent what would be the equivalent of three entire chapters addressing this issue of food offered to idols. And we've spent several weeks working through this. But let me give you kind of the overarching theme here. The focus of these chapters in general, so 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10... And then these verses here at the end specifically is on edifying or building up other Christians to the glory of God. The focus of all of this is on edifying or building up other Christians to the glory of God. In fact, we could put this concept in the category of the third use of the law. You ever heard that term before? If you're not familiar with that concept... Let me explain what it means. Um, Scripture shows that God intended his law to function in, in three ways. Its first function, when you read the law, is to be a mirror reflecting to us both the the perfect righteousness of God and also our own sinfulness and our own shortcomings. The law is meant to to give us knowledge of sin. It shows our need for forgiveness, for a pardon. And it shows the danger of condemnation in order to lead us to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Some don't like to read the law. They don't like to study the law. But the law shows us our need for a Savior. Well, the second use of the law is what is sometimes known as the civil use. It is given to restrain evil to secure a, a civil order in society. So think, of, think of God's laws that are given to us in Scripture that, that most nations adopt as their own laws, such as you shall not murder or you shall not steal. Those laws are given by the Lord to restrain evil. 
And then the third use of the law is what we're talking about here. And that is that the law is given to guide God's people, even Christians, into the good works that God has planned for them. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The law tells God's children what will please our Heavenly Father. In the Great Commission, Jesus was speaking of the, the, this third use of the law when he said that, that those who become his disciples must be taught to do all that he had commanded, he said. He also taught in John chapter 14, verse 15, that obedience to his commands proves the reality of our love for him. Disciples obey their master. So the law first shows us our sin, and second, it restrains evil, and then the third use of the law is that it shows believers how to obey our Lord. Now here's why I'm taking the time to point this out. Um, These verses are about glorifying God and seeking the good of our neighbors, or to put it another way, they're about loving the Lord our God and loving our neighbor as ourself. Does that sound familiar? It should. Jesus said, listen to Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. It says this, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first, the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all of the law and the prophets. Now that's not the gospel. That's the law. Jesus even says it very clearly. There's a distinction. There's a distinction between the, the gospel and law. Apart from Christ... We can't keep either of those laws, can we? But he kept them fully and completely for us. And so those who are in Christ are now able to use that that summary of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We're able to use that summary of the law to guide us to live in such a way that pleases our God and Savior. Keep those things in mind as we work through these verses because because Paul brings, as he brings this section to a close, he gives his readers, the church, some practical application. And he does so by by answering four questions. And I've put them all in the same letter so that you can remember them easily. I'm not good at that. But every once in a while, the light goes on. What is permissible? What is profitable? What is problematic? And what is the purpose? What is permissible? What is profitable? What is problematic? And what is the purpose? So what is permissible? Look at verse 23. Paul says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. This is similar to back in chapter 6, verse 12, which says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Clearly, the the Corinthians used this slogan, all things are lawful, as an excuse to sin. 
They misconstrued the truth that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. They used that, they twisted that to give them the authority to live however they wanted. And so they lived by this, by this statement, by the maxim, all things are lawful. But do you know what's wrong with this? Well, a couple things. First, it makes, it makes our, own, our own feelings the standard of right and wrong, right? If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad, she sang. If you have, um, you have to live by your truth, that lady on TV used to tell us. One of the church fathers, um, a guy by the name of Clement of Alexandria, he said this, those who take advantage of everything that is lawful rapidly deteriorate into doing what is not lawful. I would say this is true. And then the second thing that is wrong, not only are our feelings the standard, but the second thing that's wrong with living by this maxim, all things are lawful, is that it cheapens God's grace towards sinners. Or more accurately, it cheapens our view of his costly grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said this, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is a grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living in in incarnate. Costly grace is the sanctuary of God. It has to be protected from the world, not thrown to the dogs. It is therefore the living word, the word of God, which he speaks as it pleases him. Costly grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes as a word of forgiveness to the broken spirit and contrite heart. Costly grace, grace is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and to follow him. And it is grace because Jesus says my yoke is easy and my burden is light. To have the view that all things are lawful, meaning you can do whatever you want because Christ has forgiven you, that cheapens the cost of the cross. So Paul counters this view with two statements that should remind us of the, of the corporate or the body or the, or the family nature of the church, of the assembling of the saints, especially if we remember that he began this whole section back in chapter 8, verse 1, by saying that love builds up. Love builds up. And in this individualistic society that we live in, where everyone does what is right in his own eyes, where everyone lives out his, his own truth, Paul offers this radical perspective. The only things that are profitable are those which build up the church. That's radical. The only things that are profitable are those which build up the church. And he's inferring, therefore, that anything that might tear down another person is unlawful, which means sinful. Here's an example. Even in this room today, we have differing views on the consumption of alcohol. We understand that. We have differing views in here. 
But I think we would all agree that it would not be wise, or in fact would be wrong, to bring beer to one of our regular church lunches. If this was the day you decided to do that, we will let you quietly slip out and put it back in the... To do so would, to, would be to invite all kinds of trouble, right? We understand that. Wisdom tells us those things. But we also believe that outside of here, whether at home or a restaurant or whatever, it's a matter of conscience. Consumption is never condemned outright in Scripture, although drunkenness is repeatedly. And there are associations that people make and and family histories with alcoholism and sometimes the violence that is associated with that. And while all things are lawful, not all things build up. We understand that. But these types of issues are seen in in all kinds of other areas as well. Can, Can women wear makeup? Must they wear dresses or, or can they wear pants? How about music styles? And I don't mean just in church. What about tattoos? What is permissible? Churches have fought over these things. And in some cases done great damage, probably even to some of you. I know even to some of you or your families. What is permissible? To answer this question, we need to not only think of ourselves, but how it will affect others in the body as well, with an attitude of love that edifies and builds up the church. But that's not not the only question that Paul answers here, because he also answers the question, what is profitable? What is profitable? Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. I think actually the New American Standard Bible has a really good, maybe even the best English translation of this verse, um, because the word good, even though it's there in the NASB, the New American, um, it's probably in italics if you have that version, it's not really there in the Greek. Paul leaves it open-ended. He doesn't use the word for good. And so instead of that word good, we could, we could insert the word advantage, or interest, or enjoyment, or needs. I think you get the idea. Instead of selfish things, we are to seek the interests and the needs of others. And I want to point out this, this not just simply those within the church, but also toward unbelievers that we relate to in some way, like in verse 27. In fact, Paul has sort of broadened his focus beyond just simply the new believers in the church, even those who are, who are outside living around us and watching and interacting with us. And so when we ask the question, what is profitable, we mean for the building up of believers and for the salvation of unbelievers. Paul even mentions that at the end of verse 33. This is countercultural stuff. Do you realize that? The world says, me first. Christians are to fight against our own selfish tendencies. And that's rooted in God's law. His command to love your neighbor as yourself. And and because of the gospel, because he has first loved us, that's possible. 
Remember, 1 John chapter 4, verses 10 and 11 says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He, he takes our sin upon himself and removes it, takes it away from us, pays the penalty for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Before we can understand and demonstrate what Paul will, Paul will tell us more about when we get to chapter 13 when, when he says this. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. rude. It, it does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. I can't stress enough the importance that we get this in the right order. Our ability to love our neighbor, to do what verse 24 tells us, is rooted in the work of Christ. We can't do this without him. Listen to a couple of passages that explain this. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 says this, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 15, verses 2 and 3 says this, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me because of Christ. This is why Paul says at the end of this section, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Because Paul demonstrated for them and for us this kind of Christ-like, selfless love for, for the Corinthians themselves by giving up his own rights in order to build them up. He just said in chapter 8, verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Why? So that he can build them up. He's willing to lay down that right to build up the church. And then in chapter 9, he says that he, really the whole chapter, he lays down his right to be paid for his ministry. Because as he says in verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them to Christ. Paul's aim clearly is to build up the church of Christ in love, even by preaching the gospel to those who are far off, just as Christ did. And what's clear from all of this is that Paul is... He's not telling them never to eat meat again. Um, it depends on the situation. Their love for others should influence their actions. He's calling for maturity and selflessness. He's calling for Christ-likeness. And now he gets to a specific example where he answers this third question, what is problematic? What is problematic? Look at verses 25 to 30. Verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, 
this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do, not, uh, I do not mean your conscience, but his, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I gave thanks. Now, the end of that section is a little bit confusing. I want to admit that. But Paul is laying out, really, three scenarios where we're able to demonstrate this kind of Christ-like love. Um, avoiding, avoiding food that has any associations with idolatry was next to impossible for the Corinthians. Because any food that would be purchased in the meat markets could have been tainted by, by some idolatrous ritual. In fact, probably was. Um, and so that possibility does not mean that they must avoid all food that has even the slightest chance of having some association with an idol. So, for us. These days, most of the companies that we do business with have some connection with idolatry. Even local restaurants. And again, conscience comes into play here. Look at this first scenario. We're going to get into this a little more specific. First scenario is verses 25 and 26. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This means that you can go to Kroger or Aldi or wherever and buy your food without feeling the need to look up every individual potato chip maker or frozen vegetable company to see if they've bowed to the idolatry of the LGBTQ movement, for example. The spirit of the age. Chances are many of them have, right? It is the thing to do right now. Just like in the Corinthian markets for them. But as Christians, we know that they're just potato chips. It's just food, right? And so we can thank God for it. Because of verse 26, we can thank God for it. And by the way, this means that we are all free to shop wherever we want. And so just as we are free to grow our own food or not, we're also free to shop at Trader Joe's or not. And so Paul is saying that this scenario is not problematic for us. We should be able to do this with a clean conscience. The second scenario in verse 27, it's also really straightforward. Look at verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. If your unbelieving neighbor invites you over for dinner and you get there, and you find out that the food was ordered from a local restaurant that supports the idolatry of the LGBTQ movement, remember this, it's just food. And Paul says, eat whatever is set before you without letting it bother you, because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But then in verse 28, he adds this third scenario. He says, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Now, here's the thing to remember. It's still just food, right? What changed? What's changed is the attitude of the unbelieving host. It could be a test. Will you eat this sacred meat or not? 
It could be that they don't understand the, the exclusive nature of Christianity. I always try to support this store or this company or this restaurant because they promote inclusivity and alternative lifestyles. Isn't that wonderful? In this case, Paul says that Christians should decline. Not because your conscience would be somehow tainted, but because their view of Christians and Christianity would be tainted. Their misinformed understanding of Christianity would be that it's, that it's just like all of the other religions. It is synchronistic, pulling all of it together and not exclusive. This is why the, really this is what the false teaching churches of our day are doing. They're saying you don't have to turn from your sin in order to be a Christian. They're saying that Jesus accepts you just the way that you are. No repentance required, but that's cheap grace. That's not grace at all. In fact, it only leads to death. Now, I'm as sick as everyone else about talking about this particular idolatry, but it's only getting worse, and it's going to continue to get worse. And so we need to steal ourselves with the Word of God. And verse 29 affirms that we, Christians, are secure in Christ. In this scenario, we abstain not for us, but for those who don't understand, for those who find the radical nature of Christianity confusing. Christians have been sanctified. They have been set apart for Christ. And that means that we refuse to participate with demons, with idolatry, that we are free to not eat anything that would cause either, either new believers to stumble or unbelievers who have a wrong perception of Christianity. And if it's, it is a food that we, can, that we can give thanks for with a clear conscience, then go ahead and partake. Which leads us really to the final question that we've been hinting at all along here. And, and that is, what's the purpose? What's the purpose of this? Pick it up in verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. These two commandments, love God and love your neighbor, upon which all of the law and the prophets depend, Jesus said, they're given to us not to save us, but to show us our sin and our need for a Savior, to restrain the evil in our own hearts. And once we have trusted in Christ for salvation, to guide us in the good works that God has planned for us. And so as Paul imitates Christ, as he says, we can see these two laws playing out in his own life. He is striving to love the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, with all his strength, and he is calling us to do the same. And in his desire to see sinners redeemed, to see many saved, he says, he's loving his neighbor. He is esteeming his neighbor as more important than himself. And it is in this loving obedience 
to the third use of the law, to the loving obedience to the greatest commandment that we are able to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And we believe that that's man's purpose. That's why we're here. That's why we were created. That's why He has called us His own, that we might glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so when we face some of these tricky issues, thorny issues of Christian liberty, we need to ask ourselves some questions before we just jump in. Sure, it's fine. It's just food. It's just drink. But is it really going to build up the body of Christ? Is it going to glorify God? Pray with me. Lord, as we um, cut through these things and try and understand the words that that you have spoken in your word here. Lord, it is our greatest desire that we would as a church, as your people, that we would glorify you in everything that we do, that we would love one another, that we would do all things for building one another up, that we would be not be a stumbling block, that we would not do things that would cause other people, unbelievers, to, to walk away, but that we would, as Paul says, that we would not try to, to please or benefit everyone. I mean, that we would try to benefit everyone in everything we do, not seeking our own advantage, but that of the many, that they may be saved. Father, it is our prayer that we would imitate Christ. And so, Lord, as we come to the table this morning, as we are reminded even of this issue of eating and drinking, that we would come to the table to be reminded that you are our God and that we are your people. To be reminded of the new covenant in Christ's blood. To participate in fellowship with our Savior who died for us. Lord, as we come to the table this morning to renew the covenant, to say, yes, we are still your people. Yes, you are still our God, knowing that you have said that you would never leave us nor forsake us. Remind us that in Christ there is therefore now no condemnation. And Lord, help us to live in, a, in such a way that reflects that as we love one another and do all things to glorify our Father. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.